Well, November is quickly winding down, and uh, we are happy to have you back in the Undertow for episode number 18 of the Undertow podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, This is Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri. On the other end of the line, I have my co-host, Bubba Beasley. How's it going, Bubba? Doing very well. Hey, everyone. I'm glad to to be here uh, again after uh, some short delays on my end for, for just, yeah, personal reasons wasn't able to get get it together for a recording for about a week but very happy to be here yeah tonight we are diving into uh killer be killed number 13 which is the uh, latest issue in the ongoing brubaker phillips series from image comics um as always you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com you can look us up on itunes uh, you can find us on Twitter at Undertow Podcast or send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Be happy to hear from you uh, via any of those channels. So go ahead and reach out to us. We always appreciate it. Uh, give us a review on iTunes if you uh, like what we're doing. Going to start things off as always and kind of get you up to speed on any of the latest news in the, the world of Brubaker and Phillips. I think Bubba had a few items that he was going to run down. And as always, you can uh, stay caught up on all the latest news via a criminal blog which Bubba posts and administers. So I'm going to hand things off to Bubba and he can uh, get us up to speed on the news. Certainly, yeah. And it's going to be uh, another um, race condition to see which comes up first, the news summary at uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com for a criminal blog or, or the uh, news summary in this uh, recording. But um, I think the the short delay in our recording actually uh, paid off because a couple news items just came out in just in the last couple days. Uh, number one, Image Comics uh, released its uh, solicitations for February 2018, and it includes um, another uh, issue of um, Baker and Phillips' monthly series, Killer Be Killed, um, issue number 16, scheduled for February 14th. And what better way to say I love you than with the Valentine's gift of, uh, of a vigilante crime comic. Um, but uh, the, the description... Um, mentions that, quote, even the walls of a mental hospital can't protect Dylan from his curse, and back on the streets of New York, the police still hunt the vigilante, but nothing is what it seems. And, and so we see this is the um, second consecutive article or issue where the uh, cover art uh, shows Dylan in his um, now iconic uh, red ski mask, uh, presumably Dylan in his now iconic red ski mask, and in a straight jacket in, uh, in a rubber room in a uh, mental institution and going by the solicitation it looks like that um that is going to be a fairly literal take so so very interested to see how we're going to to get there uh from here um also from um image comics a couple of days ago uh november 15th so about a week ago um image comics had a press release announcing um that it is being added to made fires quote, award-winning digital platform. Um, it's described as the award-winning standard in digital comics and innovator of the proprietary motion book uh, format. And um, they're going to be bringing, quote, a trove of back catalog titles to the Madefire platform. Um, one of the titles that was mentioned is Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' Criminal. Um, when this would be uh, available on this um, uh, on this additional digital platform, what the pricing would be, that sort of thing. None of those details are available, but um, it looks like that, uh, that that people who want to dig into at least some of um, 
Brubaker and Phillips' uh, back catalog, particularly the creator-owned works that have been re-released through Image or um, released initially through Image, are going to be available in this um, digital platform called Madefire. So um, turning from Brubaker and Phillips to just to Brubaker is um, last time we had some some disappointing rumors that one of the um, the non-comic works that Brubaker was working on, the um, the film um, reboot for Maniac Cop, had been put on hold. Uh, haven't found any additional uh, corroboration or any additional news about, about uh, that particular project, but there's more news about um, another recently announced project, uh, Too Old to Die Young. Uh, with the same collaborator, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, it's uh, the uh, Amazon series that is, that's um, I've seen described as a 10-part miniseries. And just this week, um, uh, the, uh, the, the writer and producer Refn uh, posted on his, it looks like, uh, Instagram, um, Instagram page, posted a picture of himself holding the... Um, the headshots of the main cast. Um, it includes Miles Teller, which I believe we've already we've already known about, and I've uh, mentioned, I believe, in a prior podcast episode. But the cast also includes John Hawks, Callie Hernandez, Jenna Malone, and probably the most um, n- noteworthy or newsworthy uh, addition is um, is one of the Baldwin Baldwin brothers, Billy Baldwin. So. Um, so the series has cast, it's, um, I think soon to be moving into production and then will be released, uh, I believe exclusively, uh, through Amazon. So moving from Brubaker, uh, projects to Phillips projects, um, the, the very coolest announcements also last couple of days is, um, that, uh, Brubay, or Sean Phillips' work on Night of the Living Dead was not just limited to the poster for its uh, limited uh, um, 4K release run um, in uh, North American theaters. That same poster and, and uh, two other works, a, uh, a painting for a wraparound sleeve and another for, a, for the booklet, will be included in the uh, DVD and Blu-ray uh, releases by the um, prestigious uh, Criterion Collection. So um, the Criterion Collection release of Night, Night of the Living Dead, either in two-disc uh, two Blu-ray or uh, three-disc DVD, is uh, scheduled for a February 13th release. So the day before you get um, Killer Be Killed number 16, you can get uh, Night of the Living Dead. And this marks, I want to say, the fifth collaboration uh, with, between Sean Phillips and the Criterion Collection, where he's done things for Blast of Silence, uh, On the Waterfront, um, 12 Angry Men, and um, a, a new personal favorite, um, the, the Sweet Smell of Success, a movie that I hadn't been on my radar until I found out that um, that uh, John Phillips was doing the artwork for the uh, Criterion release, and I just ended up liking it a lot, you know, with with uh, some very good noir dialogue, and in this case, Night of the Living Dead, you know, the classic original, you know, George A. Romero. Um, zombie movie shot outside Pittsburgh on a shoestring budget by a band of filmmakers determined to make their mark. 
Um, one of the great stories of independent cinema, a midnight hit turned box office smash that became one of the most influential films of all time. And those who have been keeping up with uh, Sean Phillips over the years know that that his most prominent title um, prior to the uh, creator-owned collaborations with uh, Brunebaker was his Marvel Zombies work. So um, his uh, collaboration here for uh, Night, of Li- Night of the Living Dead makes a lot of sense. The, um, the cover is beautiful this will be a inexpensive and more um i guess com- compact way to bring the artwork home rather than trying to track down one of the posters and it it too is scheduled uh, just in time for valentine's day so um i've also seen in the last few days that sean phillips has uh loaded quite a bit of inventory to his big cartel um uh shop looks like like one-off items from his uh, personal collection that he's just trying to um streamline and uh sift through uh, would have more details, except uh, at least at the moment, his big cartel uh, page, Sean uh, Sean P. com doesn't seem to to oh haha <laughs> that would be why the link he provided in his Twitter uh, is the wrong link. If you go to Sean Phillips without the second P, um, it will uh, come up right there, and uh, yeah, you have um, uh, trade paperbacks, individual issues. Um, and in a lot of cases, it seems like it's a, a one um, item in stock, uh, first come, first serve. And it's always worth uh, going to see see what's uh, on his uh, shop. And then the uh, very last item of note, and this is just a minor item, but um, the big news in the, uh, the world of the mainstream superhero comics is that Bendis um, – Brian Michael Bendis has moved from from doing everything with Marvel. He has jumped ship um, and has moved to uh, DC. You know, pretty much all of a sudden. And a uh, retailer email uh, from Marvel announced uh, the cancellation of uh, two of Bendis's um, creator-owned works that were being printed through Marvel: Powers Number Nine and United States of Murder uh, Incorporated Annual Number One. Um, and they will not be resolicited at a later date, and with their cancellation, it looks like this pretty much ends um, the Icon imprint. So for those who have been following Brubaker and Phillips for a while, the um, Icon imprint was an imprint that Marvel created for their highest profile creators to um, publish their creator-owned work, kind of kind of like how Image um, has the the entire focus on creator-owned work, but this was kind of a niche, kind of a boutique imprint um, that, from what I've read, Marvel didn't, you know, didn't really support all that strongly, but made it as an incentive for um, exclusive contracts with big names. But with Bendis gone, um, so goes Icon. So um, at some point, we should see all of Brubaker and Phillips' uh, former Icon works re-released uh, through Image. At this point, we are still waiting for um, for Incognito and Incognito uh, Bad Influences, the the sequel, both to be republished by Image at some point down the road. So yeah, so that's it was just uh, yeah. I guess it was just it was just Criminal and Incognito. That was the only creator-owned stuff that that Brubaker and Phillips did through Icon, right? That is, yep. But but I think it's um, interesting that in that um, announcement about the uh, digital um, service uh, Madefire, that um, Images' press release about the back catalog mentions one of those icon titles. You know, um, mentions Criminal. Doesn't mention 
you know, the fade out or, or fatale, um, but instead mentions uh, their earliest work together that started out an icon and they've since released um, the two one shots, you know, first run through, um, uh, through image and now have re-released everything else. And it's becoming, um, it's uh, apparently becoming a big draw from uh, images point of view. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's yeah, there was actually quite a quite a fair amount of news there, and uh, yeah, that casting the uh, the casting sounds uh, very interesting for uh, that new Brubaker TV project. John Hawks, you know, the the standout role that I always think of uh, when I hear his name is his uh, his role in Winter's Bone. I thought he was exceptional in that movie. I really liked that movie a lot, and I thought he he was a a standout cast member that uh, Jennifer Lawrence film from from 2010. That was one of her uh, earliest films too, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know uh, if that was actually her debut. It was certainly the first time that I had ever seen her, and I know you know she was nominated for an Oscar. It was kind of her coming out role, um, but uh, I don't. I assume that she acted before that, but but that's definitely the first time that she was on my radar. So it was it was real early, and she was obviously very young in that in that film. Well, with that, we should um, uh, tell our our audience uh, what we're imbibing tonight, and then get right to it. Speaking of Recommendations, refreshment recommendations, drinks, beverages, yeah. Yeah, yeah nothing uh, too exciting on my end. I uh, I made a pot of French uh, French press earlier, so uh, I've just got a cup of coffee on my end and decided I would uh, perk myself up a little bit this evening for, for the episode, so I went the non-alcoholic route. And I went, um, uh, coincidentally, I went non-alcoholic as well um, a couple weeks ago, um, went to a... Uh, a football party at a friend's house you know we we all have kids about the same age and it was a great time was had by all ex- except for the fans of the other team um and um i brought fruit juice for the kids and then a, a case of uh, ginger ale uh for um for everybody and ended up uh, combining the two into a really nice uh, cocktail so what i have is some of the leftovers from that some uh, cran grape uh, juice and uh, Seagram's ginger ale uh, over ice, just uh, gently stirred, and it's it's some tasty stuff. I, I think I'm going to have to break this up for break this out again for Thanksgiving dinner and uh, just uh, keep it around through the holidays. So, yeah, do you have a name for that for that uh, concoction? I, not yet, not yet. That's something to work on. That's something to work on. If it's good enough, then it deserves a name. Well, we'll come back to it uh, for our December episode because I'll probably still be still be drinking it, and I will have uh, christened it by then. So nice, nice. Well, yeah. Shall we get into uh, issue number thirteen then? Yeah, lucky thirteen. Yeah, yeah. We will give our uh, our spoiler warning for all of our listeners. Obviously, we're going to dive into all aspects of the issue, so lots and lots of spoilers ahead. So definitely read the issue if you haven't already before listening to the rest of the podcast. But we're yeah, we're only about a little over. Uh, I guess we're just a week out from from number fourteen as record as we're recording this. So, um, yeah, wanted to dive in and and talk about the uh, the events of number thirteen as uh, things continue to ratchet up, and uh, we have finally gotten to the opening scene that we've been hammering on uh, every episode of the podcast. You know, the the opening scene of Killer Be Killed number one. We have finally went full circle in, in issue number thirteen. So. They've been hinting at it for several issues, and and we've been talking about it. But we got to that point, um, so in in a very solid issue, just uh, just all around, kind of a transformational issue. I think that we see um, 
Dylan turning into uh, this this kind of efficient, cold blooded killer that that we've seen signs of, but he's been kind of, you know, still uh, getting his legs, so to speak, and figuring things out. But we see that that transformation happen in this issue. So lots of interesting things to dive into. Yeah, kind of um, shocking in my, from my point of view that we actually got to the um, flash forward. Um, seen you know just a couple issues after basically the arc begins with this flash forward again so issue one began it and then it, we saw it again in issue 11 and now to see it uh caught up in uh in the chronology in issue 13 was a little quicker than i than i expected but it um yeah i mean it, it had raised um so many questions you know the two times that we saw it out of context you know, it, it, it is is this Dylan, you know, it, are we seeing him at a point where he's working for someone, be it, you know, uh, bad guys or the government or, or you know, it, it was, I think, very clear that he had a plan. Um, but we we then did not know what that plan was, didn't even know who they were tar- who he was targeting. At this point, we we know who he's targeting. I think we have a pretty good idea of where he is too, but we still don't have um, any real idea of where he's going with us. And and um, Dylan and you know through Dylan Brubaker, the writer, basically says that at the very end of this issue that you have no idea what's coming next. And I really don't. And and really looking forward to to um, this sort of conclusion. But enjoyed. Um, seeing this puzzle piece finally fall into place and to see this be another issue that you know where we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between the life of the vigilante and then the alter ego you know if this was um this was more of a peter parker episode or a peter peter parker issue than a uh, than a spider-man issue and um i thought it was, it was really interesting uh stuff you know in terms of Dylan's biography and psychology, and I think we still don't know where that's going as well either. Yeah, it was funny in the narration. So the uh, the book opens with uh, Dylan promising to the reader via his narration that we're almost to the opening scene. He says, I promise we're getting very close to this moment. This is all part of that plan I was formulating, as you're going to see soon, really soon. And it was funny how the, the narration kind of presented it, and then at the end it almost acts like... Uh, uh, the narrator surprised that we got there. He's like, "Oh, well, look, we actually did get there," you know. And, and so it was kind of funny how they how they presented that. Um, but yeah, we see those the same two henchmen from issue number one that I that I keep calling Tracy and Gnarly just because they resemble two uh, two prominent characters from Criminal. And then he stumbles upon the third guy that kind of somewhat resembles Riley, also from Criminal. Um, but he also, Dylan says, well, I'm the worst narrator in history for getting to the point. And he says, well, maybe after Tristam Shandy. Um, and I, I wasn't familiar with the novel of Tristam Shandy, but I looked it up, and it's, uh, I guess it's from the 1700s, and uh, its style is marked by digression, double entendre, and graphic devices. So he's kind of making a joke at his expense and saying that, um, obviously, he's been unreliable a little bit in his narration, and you don't know what to trust. But the issue then jumps to Dylan sitting in class thinking about the demon a few days after he killed Tino. Um, so that, of course, is the uh, the main events of the previous issue where we were where we saw um, him take out Tino, this henchman for the Russian mob. And he hasn't Dylan hasn't seen or heard the demon, but uh, mentions that the demon has become a mystery to solve. 
So he's he's back digging through his dad's artwork, studying the images of the demon that his dad has painted. And he says, there's an interesting line where he says, I no longer wondered if there was an actual demon. I knew I'd been hallucinating, hallucinating that before. Um, and he says he has no memory of it, but assumes that he saw these images of the demon as a kid because he was... Uh, he's, you know, he mentions that he was kind of obsessed with his dad's artwork and um, was always looking through it. So he just assumes that, hey, I would have had to have stumbled upon these images as a kid, but I have no memory of it. And then he starts questioning, you know, what we've also speculated. Oh, or is this just some kind of illness that's followed my family? You know, that my dad was haunted by this demon. Now I'm having visions of it. So yeah, I don't know. I still don't know a hundred percent. It seems to me that that Ed is saying the demon is not real. It doesn't seem to be like a a plot device to kind of trick the reader. It seems like maybe they've moved on from that, but again, I'm not, I can't say a hundred percent. What was your take on that, on that Bubba? Well, the, uh, uh, a few things is number one, he mentions a theory that he dismisses out of hand as improbable that I think we should as well. The idea that, that it, it was, um, simultaneous hallucinations. He mentions that, you know, Maybe some brain tumor that Dad and I both had that made us see the same hallucinations, and that's that's not how hallucinations work. Um, you know, it, it there are if you hand out psychotropic drugs, you know, to to a concert, you know, the, you know, the famous, you know, the Woodstock, don't smoke the, uh, don't don't take the brown acid, that sort of thing, is you can get a group of people hallucinating. What you can't do is get them hallucinating the same thing because of so much of it's it's subjective. Which, you know, just well, to, as an aside, um, one of the the arguments you know for the resurrection, you know, the, the the Christian claim of the resurrection is that all of his, all of Jesus's closest followers they couldn't have been hallucinating the same thing, and I think that that's the case here is that. It's not a hallucination in that that case of of them seeing the same thing. Maybe his dad saw, you know, had these hallucinations and communicated it through the drawing. Um, but I think what this issue does is I don't think it let let go. I don't think it drops the idea that um, his dad was haunted by the the same demon as well um, and. Um, so early on, he does say he, that he's no longer, that I no longer wondered, uh, if there was an actual demon and it's not clear that, that, that he's speaking of how he was at that time, you know, uh, or, and, you know, maybe he begins wondering again or the, you know, whether it's fi final, but, um, there was later on he does consider the possibility that his dad basically was haunted by the same demon um no i i felt like i feel like the door is closing on the demon being this tangible thing that's forcing him to do this but i don't feel like it's closed completely i feel like there's still some cracks in it like it could you know it could come back but um you know, for the longest time, they've been kind of playing both sides to where you you just can't tell, you know, what's an internal, an internal thing going on in Dylan's head versus a tangible physical entity. Internally, Dylan realizes, hey, I've 
taken uh, two men dead in three weeks, the demon would be proud. So he realizes, like, hey, he's up. You know, he's upped his his tally a little bit. So he's ahead of the he's ahead of the curve. But yeah, so then he we we Kira comes back into the picture, um, and Kira and Dylan end up taking Dylan's mom's car back to her in Westchester. Um, if you remember, he's had he's had his mom's uh, Volkswagen that he's been driving around town. So anyway, he invites Kira. They make the drive back to Westchester. I uh, thought it was kind of funny that uh, Dylan's elderly mom is buying her groceries online and mentions that she has no need for a car, so kind of playing against that stereotype. I thought that was kind of funny. And then while they are all exchanging pleasantries there in the foyer, Dylan kind of has this pained look on his face, and there's a there's a nice shot of him heading up the stairs to the attic, the, the famous attic, you know, where, where quite a few scenes now are adding up where they happen up there. Um, his face is obscured by shadows, and he starts combing through the rest of his dad's artwork again um, and the photos that are left in the attic and stumbles upon a new image of the demon that he hadn't seen before. So this was the one also that, Bubba, that you brought up that had been shared on Twitter, um, what we were calling the cult image that looks very Fatal-esque. Yep. Uh, of, you know, Sean, I think, tweeted it out a month or so back with no context, so we were speculating as to when it would come come into play, but it does come into play in this issue. So, like I said, it's kind of a Fatal-style image of a hooded man with a knife, a nude girl at kind of a sacrificial altar, and then, of course, the demon overseeing it all in the background. So that's how that image plays into it is he has, you know, he's he's combed through this artwork time and time again, but for whatever reason now this is there's another image here that he doesn't remember and has not seen recently with the demon in it. So we're up to, like, what, four... Four separate pieces of artwork that his dad has has done that that feature the demon, something like that. Yep, and um, different art styles, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll actually see these um, full scale. I think this is the first time that we've seen seen any of the demon artwork, first time in a while where where it takes up the entire page without any context, you know, like on a painting wall or or in a clipping. Um, and if if I understood. Uh, Phillips process uh, correctly this this page is colored by Phillips while the rest of it is uh, colored by uh, Brightweiser so this is full okay, Sean so Phillips. that also gives it that's interesting that's because it does definitely have a unique look and I actually didn't know that um, about him doing doing everything start to finish on it but it does it it does stand out you know it, it does look has a different look to it so that makes sense if it's not if it's not uh, Betty Brightweiser working on it as well well and to some degree <sighs> You know, Sean Phillips is the artist for every everything that you see on on the page, but I think you know, uh, surely not with the um, the the troubled background and uh, and that sort of thing, is that he's I think Phillips has allowed himself to play the role of uh, of um, the artist of uh, Dylan's troubled uh, father in this issue. If you look. You know, you see the different art styles in the the previous page. You know, the the sketch of the cave woman in the loincloth and the spear, the the pencil sketch of of the sci-fi spaceship. But you also see, um, the in the background in the behind Dylan, his kind of faded uh, monochromatic memories of his dad um, drawing from a uh, from a, uh, a live model. You know, holding an axe, and that very first shot, and that looks quite a bit like uh, Sean Phillips himself. And then, if you look uh, a few pages later, 
you'll see um, Dylan thinking again about uh, about his dad, and there's a picture of uh, or there's an image of his dad contemplating his artwork. You know, arms folded, tr- stroking his chin, and again, it looks very, very much like uh, Sean Phillips himself. And in terms of the artwork, you know, every every page obviously is Phillips' artwork, but I think he's really expressing himself very, uh, very distinctively in the um, in, in the sample artwork from uh, Dylan's dad, particularly the demon artwork. Yeah, you're right. The I had not actually thought about that, but the uh, the flashback images of his dad that are kind of the orange tinted kind of blurred out dream sequence look at you you're right i definitely see sean phillips in that one on the top of the page um that i didn't notice when i first read it but you're right there's a definite resemblance so that's an interesting little self-reflexive kind of um portrait of the artist comic yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and it's obviously it's a man working at an easel so um definitely a world that sean knows well but and you're right the the as far as the full page um demon sci-fi porn cult porn uh image you know and that's it definitely stands out but of course he's he's mimicking a style that would be that would have fit in this this world that that dylan's dad worked in so i guess you know 1970s era i think would be the decade probably we're, we're talking about you know so it's just a it's a it's a nice touch and it does it jumps out at you and it's a full page spread and it is quite striking when you turn the page and you see that image and then there was a moment that kind of surprised me. So when Dylan's upstairs in the attic and he's contemplating this new um, image of the demon that he's found, Kira and Dylan's mom walk in on him. And he's holding this demon image. And he surprisingly, I thought maybe he would, I don't really know why. I, I felt like that was such a personal internal struggle that he's going through. I was almost surprised when he just immediately asked his mom about it and says, hey, do you remember um, why dad, you know, do you remember seeing this demon in dad's artwork before or how many times it's been there? You know, for some reason I thought he might keep that information to himself that he was, that he was curious about it. But I guess without any context, I guess that wouldn't necessarily mean anything to his mom or Kira, but it still felt almost like uh, a reveal that he just, I was surprised that he just opened up about it and immediately asked for some reason. Yeah, I guess that would be another, maybe it's another indication that, that, um, Dylan is, um, Fairly, very firmly in the camp that um, that the demon is, isn't real, so that you know she, he's not asking uh, his mother about a real demon that might have haunted his dad. He's just asking about about a piece of artwork, trying to figure out how it got uh, got um, anchored in his own in his own mind. Well, and it also seems funny at the onset of this scene. It seems funny that he's having this discussion of this. Uh, you know, this kind of extreme graphic artwork with his elderly mom. But then we find out uh, another kind of funny moment is when his mom reveals that she used to model for Dylan's dad's artwork. So that makes the, uh, you know, the Viking princess or the the loincloth spear model from an earlier couple pages more interesting when we consider that, that there's a very good chance that that's Dylan's mom. So no wonder Dylan has all sorts of issues. It's it's again the the, the subversion of the whole uh, Peter Parker thing is you know yeah finding out Aunt Aunt May was kinky, so <laughs> yeah I liked your analogy with uh, we've got Kira and Dylan's mom kind of having this conversation behind Dylan's back and I, yeah I liked your analogy of uh, yeah that's gonna end, all sorts of problems would ensue if MJ and Aunt May start talking 
uh, behind Peter Parker's back and all those worlds start colliding. And we see that a little bit um, later on on the uh, the ride home is that you know, he's been hiding, he's been constructing different realities, you know, different um, uh, excuses and, and lies and, and deceptions. And the last thing he wants is his version of Mary Jane and his version of Aunt May to, to compare notes and, and find that there are discrepancies. So far, there's nothing huge. But, yeah, it still still uh, shows to be a little bit of a problem. So, yeah, his mom doesn't recognize the demon right off the bat. Um, oh, and it does have a date on the picture. So the picture is dated October 1970. And Dylan's mom sees that date and offhandedly says, oh, well, that's just a few months after his son died. And so this is another big reveal that we haven't heard anything about yet in this book. Um Dylan knows nothing about this and is is very surprised at this news, but we find out that his dad had a son from his first marriage named Philip. Um, and his mom kind of insists that, oh yeah, you should remember, we always talked about Philip and there were pictures up, but Dylan claims that he has no memory of this. So again, it's kind of like the uh, the demon image in his dad's artwork. Once again, he has no memory of seeing these things as a, as a child or growing up. So that, you know, obviously prompts a lot of questions in the reader's mind as to why the why are these things not in his memory. Um, but she also, his mom also reveals that Philip committed suicide. So another tragic life um, gone to suicide in, in Dylan's immediate family. So that's another interesting big moment that, that happened in this issue. And Dylan says, how could I have forgotten something that big? So, yeah, I'm questioning now if his uh, kind of nefarious psychologist, if there's some kind of um, repressed memory hypnosis you know is there some is there somebody at work behind the scenes that has taken these memories from Dylan or what you know what's the situation there I think there's a whole lot of questions and a whole lot of directions that could go in but I don't think that I think that has something to do with the story I don't think that's just a a side detail that doesn't matter yeah and what is the real story behind uh behind this this older you know um half brother and why he committed suicide and what what was the relationship between um, uh, between Philip and Dylan's dad and yeah and then yes exactly uh, he he raises the same question in the um, in the narration on the next page of um, one of these again full you know full page um, single single spreads with the narration running down the white column on one side is were there other parts of my father's life. And really, it's, he should be asking you know, about his own as well. Were there other parts of my father's life that I'd either never known about or wiped from my memory after his death? So now, so there are now two missing pieces. What are the other missing pieces? What else do we not know? And he makes he, – he also says you know, that, that um, his mom is kind of awkward bringing this up. Um, you know, the tone of someone who just brought up something they wish they hadn't. You know, bringing up a previously unknown brother who committed suicide to your son who has tried to kill himself twice. He's the only one that knows that he's tried to kill himself a second time. <laughs> so even even he's having, I think, a little trouble keeping up with his um, – keeping up with um, what, what he has told to whom. So. Yeah, and I noticed you mentioned that the, the next following page after this big reveal that um, – 
Ed and Sean do the the kind of familiar style now of having the text down the sidebar and then a full page image kind of separated from from the text. And for whatever reason, I took note that um, on this particular panel, Dylan's foot actually bleeds across the panel. So it was kind of an interesting effect. The shadow of his foot kind of falls within the white text sidebar. So he's he's almost stepping out of the image, but it's behind him. It's trailing behind him as they're walking forward. So, and like I said, I don't know if I'm, if I'm reading too much into that. It was just kind of an interesting effect that I took note of as I was reading the book. And so Dylan's mom gives him a few of Philip's um, old photographs and documents about his, his half brother. But um, she's, she said he really, she really doesn't know that much about him. You know, this would have happened, I, I guess, well before, uh, Dylan's dad and his mom got married. So he takes this stuff back to the city with him. And this is the moment that Bubba was talking about earlier. So Dylan and Kira are on the train ride back to the city. And Kira brings up, she says, hey, your mom had men- mentioned to me that, that you spent a few weeks at her house and that your friend was killed by the vigilante, which of course gets her attention. And so Dylan kind of perks up and and does mention, yeah, well, you know, that Rex was this drug dealer, but he, you know, he kind of downplays it. So this is when you get the uh, Aunt Bay, Aunt May, and MJ talking behind Peter Parker's back moment. That's going to definitely create problems for for uh, Dylan. And I think my favorite page of the whole issue comes after that, as far as art wise. Uh, there's this montage of Dylan's dad. Uh, reading, working, smoking. There's these uh, three images top to bottom. And those three images combined with Ed's writing make it just a just a really powerhouse page. I thought that was probably my favorite moment of the whole book. And I, th- and I would say the second image is the one that's most clearly um, a self-portrait on Sean Phillips' part. Yeah, you're right. That is the one that stands out. Um, and Dylan has some good lines about his dad that I think – you know, and this is kind of the transformation that I was talking about. So he's he's talking about his frame of mind as he's weighing all this new news and thinking about his dad's kind of sad life um, that leads him to to where we see him in that opening scene. So he said he's talking about his dad and he says it's just pathetic. These few things are all that dad held on to. Not the kind of pathetic that makes you angry, but the kind that breaks your heart, that small, fragile kind. So there's a bunch of good lines like that. And then when you find out that his dad had a... Um if not a connection to the mob, at least a um, a um, unfriendly run-in with the mob. Yeah, you're right. So there's another analogy that's coming through, or another parallel between uh, you know Dylan's current struggles and what his dad has went through in his life. Besides the mental illness, they also had yeah some some run-ins with the mob, and obviously Dylan's right in the thick of that now. And then there's a moment. There's a moment later on uh, when Dylan walks into his college classroom. There's a professor lecturing. And he's talking about uh, Charles Dickens being inspired by the play uh, The Dead Heart uh, in terms of A Tale of Two Cities. I, and did you think there was any significance to that line, or is it just a kind of a throwaway, generic uh, college professor line? What did you think about that? Well, I, I, I actually didn't uh, know that it was an allusion to, to Tale of Two Cities, so you'd probably know more about it than, than I would, actually. Well, I looked it up, whatever the whatever the quote was, I looked it up and then I saw that, you know, I guess that's something that's been debated in the literary world, that if a, a Tale of Two Cities was, you know, inspired by this play that came before it and how much, you know, Charles Dickens had taken from that. But I, it was not something that I was aware of before. I just uh, 
ran with the context of the line and kind of figured out where it was coming from. And like I said, I didn't know if, if there was any significance or you just needed, you know, the professor to be talking about something literary to make it fit with the scene. I wasn't sure about that. But it, it did seem like maybe that was put in there for a reason, but I don't really know what the significance might be. Yeah, apart from what the actual, um, you said the Dead Heart was a play, that that what it relayed and everything is the title at least the imagery of a dead heart you know i think connects with the um, narration before had i not known my father because the world beat him up too much before i got here basically was was his dad's heart already dead before uh, dylan was born yeah and that's kind of the frame of mind that dylan's going through and i thought the pacing was really was really nice in this issue there towards the latter half um as we see him you know, thinking about his dad, growing angry, you know, sad, depressed, and just thinking about this guy that, uh, like I said, just kind of a pathetic existence at the end. And, you know, and, and I thought that, like I said, I thought the pacing was really well. It showed Dylan's transformation from the bumbling vigilante to this efficient, cold-blooded killer. And there's just this kind of sparse narration and these varied scenes that culminate in that very great shot of Dylan donning the red mask and saying, I'm angry. And then we catch up to where we've been before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we finally come full circle. And uh, another nice work by Sean there in the last shot. You've got, you know, Dylan's eyes are just filled with rage. And of course, that's all you can see with the uh, red ski mask, smoke coming off of a shotgun. Um, so yeah, it took 13 issues, but we got back to that opening scene. Uh, so. Yeah, all in all, it was a quite a satisfying issue, I thought. Yeah, and I think we we can now say more about that opening scene is that, you know, obviously it's a um, uh, he's targeting the Russian mob. It's apparently a building that they not only occupy but probably probably own from information that that he got from the uh, the go between that he killed um, right at the end of the previous issue, um, but. I wonder if it's act, if it's supposed to be or is um, that uh, that apartment building above the corner deli that was um, being used as basically a um, a, a uh, brothel for prostitution. If you see, you know, going back to the first issue, um, Dylan walking through the hallway, you'll see scantily clad girls looking out um, from from the apartment uh, door doorways. And you know they may not just be cheesecake in terms of uh, artwork. It may it may be you know an indication of where he is that that he is in a uh, in a brothel and you know these are security guards you know guarding guarding the business establishment and the guy who runs out isn't just a uh, a random guy um, you know throwing throwing another scantily clad woman back into into the uh, the small apartment. But it's another one of the Russian mobsters. He's basically going into the hornet's nest. Um, that's one thing that struck out with struck out to me um, in comparing these three scenes, you know, or these three views of the same scene from issue one to to issue eleven to issue thirteen. Um, it's kind of interesting that we don't see anything afterwards. Um, but we actually know how this scene ends. That Dylan leaves. He he goes back to um, his apartment and um, walks past um, his uh, roommate Mason, and 
And I think it's kind of funny if you look at the two scenes together, if you look at him leaving for the mob uh, nest um, here in issue 13, and then if you see in the him returning in issue one, he gives two different lies to Mason. You know, that, that um, meeting some friends from school when he's heading out and then he come back in, Professor Grant had a thing at his place. So, and um, it's actually, he walks in, he checks his jaw because he just got punched pretty hard by the, uh, by the, I guess that would be fourth mobster that he was about to kill. And then he starts taking a shower and that's, that is as far into the, um, into the narrative, into the chronology that we've actually gotten. But I think, I don't know whether, how much we're supposed to notice because not a lot of attention was drawn to it. But what is clearly communicated, be you know far clearer than where exactly he is or who exactly he's targeting, is what he does. That um, in issue thirteen, basically entering the building from the rooftop, which very reminiscent from uh, one of the uh, flashback sequences from uh, Godfather Part Two. You know, going from roof to roof to to get to where where he wants to be to to hit a mobster. Which is what um, De Niro's character, the young Vito Corleone, uh, did in Godfather 2. He takes off the coat that he's been wearing. He leaves it on, on the uh, at the roof. He never goes back for it. We yeah, know that was the next. Uh, that was the next question I was going to ask you about. Is that I took note of that he took off his outer black coat. Yeah, um, and, and we see, and we sweatshirt. we, and we finally see that coat in detail, um, laying on the on his bed, just uh, the previous. Uh, you know, if you turn turn the the page back, you'll see it laying on his bed with a um, looks like I would guess a custom pocket for his uh, sawed off shotgun. But he sets it down, and we know from issue one he walks out. He does not uh, walk out with it. But we also know from um, issue one, and I want to say issue eleven again. Let me check and make absolutely sure that that um, yeah, in both of those, after he. Um, beats up the fourth guy, the guy in the um, unbuttoned shirt and the wife beater. He he basically um, gets punched, you know, across the face. He gra- and Dylan grabs the the handle the um, the shotgun and uses the butt end of it to uh, beat the guy to death. He he leaves the shotgun as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know what his end game is with uh, attacking the brothel. Um, other than just channeling his anger, I mean, I know he wants to go after the Russian mob, but obviously, you know, I don't think the the head boss, the big boss guy that he staked out at his house, you know, that guy's not going to be there at the brothel. Um, so I don't think he was attempting to take him out or anticipating that he would be there. You know, taking out these henchmen, I don't really know what his goal is, other than just, like I said, maybe he's just in. You know, he talks about that he's not nervous; he's just angry. So maybe it's just kind of channeling that frustration about his dad towards these guys or maybe he's just literally going to go on a rampage and try to take out as many of these guys as he can that are part of that are connected to the mob in any way i'm not sure what his end game is yet yeah but he does seem to have a plan he does seem to be deliberate about it and i'm uh reminded of the very first criminal arc um coward and uh, hopefully we're not spoiling an arc you know that was um released you know, 11 years ago that the um the item that leo the the central character was was supposed to steal you know became a uh, very much sought after item and 
at one point, you know, the question, uh, the reader wonders, you know, all right, wh- where is it? And we actually see where it is. He, he had earlier in that same issue, um, very without drawing in any attention to it, to to himself, he, you know, Leo just put the suitcase in the back of the car as he was getting ready to leave. There was all sorts of drama, you know, an argument as he was driving off, and it's one of those. I think advantages of of Philip's artwork, where it is realistic without being photorealistic, that you can see see those details without having the details being drawn to you, you know, without them being being overt. But if you go back and see it, it, it all fits together, just like how you could see Dylan, you know, sullenly see, uh, sitting in the bar spying on the uh, Russian go-between in the previous issue, or you can see the very distinctive headlights of that uh, Volkswagen Beetle uh, as he's uh, following the same guy around, you know, spying on the mob. Um he has a plan, uh, evidently, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, alluded to in the last line. So, yeah, I thought it was a really satisfying issue. Like I said, I still think uh, number twelve is probably my pick as of the fa- of my favorite issue of this series thus far. But, but no, thirteen uh, uh, I think is an important issue, and it seemed to, like I said, I like that internal seeing that internal transition or transformation in Dylan. I thought it did a good job of presenting that and, you know, setting up the story to go in a pretty exciting direction, I think, after this. And I and I think even apart from just the uh, plot elements, a couple things that stood out to me that really wasn't um, on one particular page, just overall. Number one is the, the artwork from uh, Sean Phillips, just the everyday scenes that we see, uh, particularly – the early shot of looking at the classroom with the uh, the professor just you know part of the professor's back being shown, and pretty much everybody's taking notes or quite a few are taking notes, but very few look interested in what they're what they're listening to. It looks very much like a classroom. It's a, it's a very much a slice of life. The same same thing um, in the uh, train on the way back uh, from his uh, mother's house. You know, you see everybody getting off the train and, you know, nobody looks, you know, nobody looks chipper after a long, tra- uh, long ride on public transportation. <laughs> and I just thought it w- that was really good drawing. And then I think partially it's because of the book I'm going to be recommending um, later because of the artwork in that book. But one thing I've no- noticed in the coloring is um, – the pixelation. The technical term is uh, bin day dots. The um, the the dots that you more frequently see, like in newspaper, um, in the Sunday funnies, in the newspaper comics. Um, I think for the first time, we we see the the dots on the mask. We see it a lot more, um, quite a bit, in the shading on um, on the face on Dylan's mom. And then we uh, see see it again um, on the very last page. You know, it just under Dylan's psychotic, angry eyes, we see that that same sort of um, uh, dots. And look, I, I had to look back in previous issues, and the technique is used, but I'm not sure it's used as prominently. And I'm wondering if maybe there's a plan to 
to bring this sort of unreal, unrealistic, um, almost cartoony artifact art effect um, to the the artwork, you know, as um, as kind of a contrast to what's going on. No, that's interesting. I hadn't taken note of that, but I do see what you mean now that I'm looking at that last that last closing frame. I don't. I th- I think it may be going too far to suggest that that there is a single convention or a single rationale uh, behind when it's used and when it's not used. But I think this is the first time that I've really noticed its use in in. Uh, this particular series, where I think the last time I really noticed it in a uh, Brubaker Phillips work was in the um, Archie style comics in uh, the the you know the life of life of Riley comics in uh, Last of the Innocent. Yeah, did you have anything else on uh, issue number thirteen, Bubba, that you wanted to mention before we moved on to recommendations? Uh, no, I I did really enjoy it. I would have. Um, I do think the previous issue was more more thrilling um and, and i think that you know the excitement wasn't um helped in this issue by the fact that we didn't actually push push the timeline any further forward beyond that um that that flash forward scene from issue one and issue 11 um but i think a lot of dominoes are being set up in this um in this issue particular not just with dylan's plan but with his dad, uh, with his possibly with his dad's prior connection to to organized crime, uh, with his half brother, um, I'm very interested to see see how all of this uh, plays out. And then the only other thought is by placing this in um, um, placing that that big you know shoot 'em up scene in the context of what what may be coming up or what we know is coming up in the solicitations if uh dylan is going to be institutionalized for a while um he's he's you know he's put some money in the bank if there really is a curse he's taken out four guys in one night and he may not be done yet so he may be able to take a short vacation at bellevue before you know without having to worry about the uh the curse kicking in if it turns out to be real after all but yeah, for this month, I guess we will uh, wrap things up here with our recommendations. I think uh, we're both going to do comics this time, right? I believe so, and I'd be happy to go first. This this month, I'm recommending another uh, new crime comic and doing so fairly early in its run. Uh, the comic book is called Slots, S-L-O-T-S, basically the, the short um, nickname that you would give to slot machines. Um, a comic book uh, almost entirely created, so... Uh, Creator, writer, and artist Dan Panosian, and I hope I'm not butchering his last name too much, um, released by Image Comics. Um, it's also being described as a skybound yarn, and that kind of raised a question mark in my mind. And and um, is this is this part of a larger universe, that sort of thing? And and I don't believe it is. Skybound is just the um, entertainment company founded by uh, Robert Kirkman. You know, it's the company that uh, publishes uh, the Walking uh, that the p- company that publishes The Walking Dead using Image Image uh, Comics as a publisher. It also publishes, you know, Invincible and Outcast, and uh, it's publishing this uh, creator-owned work uh, called Slots. It looks like it's, um, as best as I can tell, it is an ongoing series, not a mini-series. Uh, described this way is that um, 
this from the uh, the description of issue number one. You can say this about the life of Stanley Dance. He did it his way. Unfortunately, his way never took getting old into account. Now the former boxer is on his last lost on his last legs, looking for redemption, but he'll settle for going down swinging. Roll the dice with superstar artist Dan Panosian as he creates a bold and breathtaking vision of Las Vegas, where everything old can become new and superstition influences how the chips fall. Um, which tells you everything and nothing. Basic, the basic premise is, um, and and I say this having seen two issues, just two issues come out, is um, the main character Stanley Dance is um, basically he p- epitomizes the sort of uh, charming rogue, um, though uh, his uh, ex-wife describes him as an asshole, and I frankly can't dis- disagree with that description either. Um, a guy who has basically uh, put himself first uh, for his entire life and has um, lived off of luck, almost you know treating luck and superstition as a as a kind of religion. Uh, when he is about to um, to use the Vegas phrase, cash in his own chips, um, cash in his chips when he thinks his luck has run out, um, he gets a a. Uh, request from an old friend and lover to come back into Vegas where he's already been run out of town and basically help save her casino. Um, he's uh, a, uh, a former boxer coming back home uh, to Vegas where he has uh, enemies, he has old friends, he has a son he hasn't seen in years a, um, who is um, a mixed martial arts fighter. Um, he is superstitious to the point of, you know, Going for uh, tarot readings and and horoscopes to to determine um, what he's going to do, you know, driving a, a, a very nice old car, pulling a trailer, pulling into uh, into Vegas. But he's also always looking for an angle. Um, one of the things I found uh, amusing in the second issue is that um, he, as this this old wash up washed up boxer. Um, he's he's angled essentially for uh, free tacos from a uh, taco truck by making the, by um, telling the owner that uh, that um, he'll use he'll uh, use the boxing gig to promote the taco truck. So he's getting free tacos out of the deal. Thought one of the, the cleverest things, and you can see this in the um, in the online preview for issue number one, is that he starts out in a diner. Um, you know, and he get his phone beeps. He says, "You know, I need to take this. I'll be right back." And um, he's been chatting up the waitress, and uh, the the uh, cook asks, "You know, whether Prince Charming settled up?" And and she says, "Relax. His keys are right here. He's not going anywhere." And he drives off because he's been keeping a uh, set of uh, spare keys. Um, you know, this big bundle of spare keys in his glove box just for that occasion to leave a set of keys as he walks out and drives off. <laughs> and by the time, by the time, you know, the restaurant owners figure out what's going on, he's, he's back on the road, which I thought was, was really, uh, really amusing. I mean, you'd have to buy the keys in bulk and I'm not sure if they would, if getting them to be working copies of the car keys would be, would be worth the trouble. But, you know, it's such an inter- a cute little con that I started, you know, thinking about how, at what point, would it actually start being worthwhile to do? So not that I would do it myself, but um, the artwork is, you know, it's it's this sort of rough artwork. It's you know cartoony, 
Yeah, it kind of reminded me of uh, Southern Bastards a little bit. Uh, I guess that's Jason Latour. It kind of mm-hmm. put me in mind of that, just a little bit kind of blocky. Yep. Um, a little bit. Blocky, exaggerated caricatures, and very heavy use of that same dotting or pixelation effect that I that I mentioned um, earlier. You know that you see here and there from uh, from Brightweiser, pretty much is used uh, throughout this comic book and. Yeah, very expressive artwork. Um, this guy, uh, Stanley, um, you know, you find out about his his life history, just how how much of a um, uh, of an amoral, um, you know, a, a, an amoral a hole he is. But he's trying to to make things right now, and he's so charming about being such a, a um, an a hole that that you kind of end up rooting for him. He really is, you know, this sort of uh, charming rogue, but very, very much a, a rogue, a very much an emphasis on him being a, uh, a con man and a, um, a, and a guy looking out for himself. Yeah. I was also going to recommend a, a comic book um, this month and mine's an older book. It's not a, not a contemporary book, but it's a book that somehow, uh, slipped through the the radar with me that I had not read until very recently but uh it's uh called Whiteout which is and there's two parts to the story Whiteout and Whiteout Melt it's a comic by Greg Rucka and Steve Lieber um both of those creators have been previous recommendations of mine um Rucka I think I recommended Lazarus uh early on and I've also recommended The Fix of which Steve Lieber is also the current artist of the a current book The Fix but anyway, this was a project, I believe it's the first time the two ever worked together. They were both, I think, relatively young in their career at this point. Um, and it came out through Oni Press, and I think about... Yeah, it was originally released in four issues during 1998, and then was collected into a trade paperback. Oh, I had no idea and it's I, nearly 20 years old. Wow. Yeah, no, I didn't know. It's a black and white, it's a black and white book, um, female protagonist, which we, you know, we see often in Rucka projects. Um, definitely kind of a mystery noir slash pot boiler set in Antarctica. Um, I would say as far as in terms of, uh, for Brubaker fans, it probably feels more similar to Velvet than a criminal or killer be killed. But it definitely kind of occupies the same space, I think. And like I said, it is a murder mystery. And uh, all black and white comic that perfectly captures the starkness and isolation of Antarctica. And, uh, you know, that setting always puts me in mind of, like, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing always comes to mind when you think of Antarctica. And there's also a good uh, a good X-Files episode called Ice that it kind of occupies that same space and uses that kind of sense of isolation and claustrophobia, even though you're in a wide open space, obviously, that, that Antarctica has. Um, and the interesting thing also to note in relation to Brubaker is it features a character named Lily Sharp. Uh, so obviously this raises the question if uh, Killer Be Killed's character, Lily Sharp, is you know, somewhat of a tip of the hat to the Rucker, Rucka character from Whiteout, it's, it seems to, that it can't just be a coincidence with the same first and last name. Um, so that's kind of interesting to note as well. Well, and particularly because uh, Brubaker and Rucka have, have worked together in the past, you know, not only on the Batman books for those crossovers like uh, – Bruce Wayne uh, Murderer and Bruce Wayne Fugitive, but most fam- famously for um, co-creating uh, Gotham Central. So. Yes. In, the, in Brubaker, actually, I noticed on the, the second book, Whiteout Melt, 
Um, you know, it has some quotes on the back cover, and Brew Baker's is featured very prominently. And he, his description of Whiteout, I thought was quite nice, uh, concise, and quite nice. He called it a history lesson full of bullet holes. So I thought that was a nice take. Um, but the main protagonist is U.S. Marshal Carrie Stetko. Uh, definitely a strong feminist vibe to Carrie. Um, the male characters are really portrayed in a pretty pretty negative light. Um, so they, yeah, they're not reflected real well in the book, just pretty much across the board. So she's, like I said, she's in Antarctica amongst uh, mostly men surrounding her in this particular, the different science stations that she's in. But she's a U.S. Marshal. And I guess, I also didn't know this, but apparently there was a, a film released based on this comic book that was released in 2009, but it seems to be pretty much a critical, critically and commercially uh, panned film um, directed by Dominic Cena and stars Kate Beckinsale, which seems to be an odd casting. I have not seen the film, but yeah, if you read the book... Carrie Stetko, I wouldn't think Kate Beckinsale immediately as uh, as who I would cast for that role just based on reading the comic. But apparently there was a film made. Um, but the book itself was pretty successful. It looks like in 1999 it was nominated uh, for several Eisner Awards, nominated for Best Writer, Best Penciler and Inker, uh, Penciler Inker Team, and Best Limited Series. And in 2000 it was nominated for the Best Graphic Album Eisner Award. Meanwhile, the 2009 adaptation looks like uh, has a 7% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So Nice, nice. <laughs> so, Sing, so, so it digits. sounds like we definitely want to recommend the source material and not the uh, the film adaptation. So Yeah, now I'm curious. I, I almost need to watch the movie. 7%, so single digits on Rotten Tomatoes. And like I said, based on the research I saw, it pretty much everyone was panning the film um, across the board. But the comic is, is quite enjoyable. It's a little bit harder to follow... Uh, like I said, it's black and white. It's very wordy, um, as Greg Rucka books often are. Very well researched. But like I said, I almost it was a little bit harder to follow than a Brubaker and Phillips book. Just the the basic layout. Um, but I think by the second by Whiteout Melt, I thought it was a little bit easier to follow. So maybe that was just me getting used to their style. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, Greg Rucka always does you know extremely detailed research. You can tell in his writing. So there was some interesting facts about Antarctica that I wasn't very knowledgeable about before I read the book. But, you know, details on the environment, the operations of the different research station, international treaties concerning the continent are all woven into the narrative. So it makes for, a you know, an interesting read as well. So so even more detailed than that Curious George episode, so. Yes. <laughs> which Which may indicate that I've been watching way too many cartoons with my kids, but... There's the the in the the opening dialogue, the first piece of character dialogue, um, is it kind of puts you right in right into that world. It just brings you into. So you see Carrie Stetko kneeling over a dead body, and there's a man standing over her shoulder, and and all he says is "Hell of a place to die, huh, Marshall?" And that's the first piece of dialogue we get. Um, and I guess there was a third volume in the series that was supposed to be released called Whiteout Thaw, that was going to be released in 2007, but I don't believe that ever came out. But the first two are out in trade, like I said, through Oni Press. Um, it's a great read, I think, for, for fans of Brubaker and Phillips-style crime and mystery comics. Yeah, Whiteout and Whiteout Melt um, would be something to check out. Well, I think we'll wrap things up there with that. Uh, that's our, our recommendations this month. A couple comics for you to check out if you are uh, in the mood to try out some some different crime comics. And again, we'll, we'll be back in, in about a month to talk about... Uh, 
the next issue of Killer Be Killed from Brubaker and Phillips, and then look forward to diving into some of their Batman work in the subsequent months after that. As always, you can find our episodes undertow.podbean.com or on iTunes, or send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com, or reach out on Twitter at undertowpodcast. We appreciate you listening, and uh, we will see you on down the road. Thanks, folks. Dirty little arms, dirty little hands, shoelaces untied, zipper broken, warm-blooded horse, red-haired kid, he trusted her. Dad never did Like summer fall His mom checked out His uncle Bill Was always hanging around But all he ever wanted was A little patch of sun All he ever wanted was a little pageant